Yeah, this is this is pretty exciting for us because uh, we love we love puppies. Well, Steve and I love puppies. <laughs> well, that's true. I guess I'm more of a cat guy. But yeah, Rob's a cat guy. <laughs> but that's fine. Oh it's, dear. Yeah. We'll we'll let it. We'll let that pass. No, so. no, no, we won't. Should I? Does that mean I should scratch off the question? Where are the all the therapy cats? <laughs> is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, my name is Rob Minow. Uh Joining me today, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Howdy. And Mr. Steve Barkley. Good day. And uh, yeah, this is AT Banter. This is where we banter about what, Ryan? Everything and anything related to assistive technology and the people who use it. Wow, boom. Ooh, boom. There's a byline. Do we have that on a website somewhere? We should, we should have that on a website somewhere. I think that's our intro. <laughs> Darn. That's right. Pretty close. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Look at that. Uh, how is everybody doing today? Uh, not too bad. Yeah, not too badly either. Yeah, getting on. You guys are boring. Wow. Now, uh, <laughs> Sorry, did, did you want something different? Oh, my foot! Oh. That's right, oh. over that age. Oh. You should be complaining about everything. Well, I got up and I, my back was sore. And... Oh, dear. Ryan, when are you going to eat these Timbits that I brought? Uh, probably at lunchtime. That's not a good lunch, Ryan. It's a fantastic lunch. I don't think that's... A, that is not... It's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, Ryan. Yes, sir. What the heck are we doing today? Today we are talking with Tara Doherty from PADS, the Pacific Assistance Dog Society. Oh, very interesting. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about puppies. We are. Yeah. In our three years of doing this, I don't think we've ever once had a guide dog school or a therapy dog school or service, so it was about time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that actually, that is true. Is that what prompted you to, to get him on the show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to hear. I'm, I'm curious to hear about the process, because that's something that, uh, that I've always kind of wondered about, not really knowing anyth- anything about uh, guide dogs and how they're trained, is that... Yeah, what does that what does that process look like? So, well, and these aren't guide dogs; these are service dogs. Well, any sort of service dogs. service animals. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to ask him about the uh, service peacock. Yep, you betcha. Hmm. Where would you even get a harness for one of those? <laughs> It'd be difficult. Yeah. A service turkey. Yeah. I lived on the turkey farm. Just think of how many turkeys I could have saved by... <laughs> That's my service turkey. Giving them little pennies and walking them out. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, hey, you know, before we get to that, you guys want to talk a little bit of relevant news? Mm, well, before we get to that, you know I, I, I had mail yesterday. Oh, really? In our physical mailbox delivered for the AT Banter Boys. What? What? Yes. Really? So I'm going to hand it over to Steve. Oh, my God. And Steve can open it up. 
What? Well, wait. Should I? Should we clear the room first? Because I wait a minute. This is a fairly thick envelope. Here. Yeah, that's that could be. There's could be anthrax in that. You let no, me know if that's, that's a white a, powder. I'm out of here. So you guys. talk into the microphone so everybody can hear. No, there's a, there's a return address on here. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, it, it's from Stump Kitchen. That's right. What? Really? Yes. This has been posted to us from from Edmonton. Oh, wow. Oh, now I gotta now I gotta look. <laughs> it's, it's 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 taped rather well, actually. It's, it's going to be difficult to get into this. Mm, All right. oh, here interesting. We here we go. Yeah, it was hard to keep my wife from opening it. She was curious. <laughs> <laughs> what do we got? What do we're we all, got? We're all we fans got? of should Alexa's. We, should we call her down for the grand unveiling? Uh, she's working for a call center, so she won't. She's actually doing work. That's right. What do we got here? There's something wrapped inside there. There's a, oh, there's a card in here with a... With a lovely picture of, of Alexis Hilliard on it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. She's got custom cards. Man, her budget, <laughs> man. We gotta we, we gotta we gotta talk to her. We gotta figure out what we're doing wrong. Stem she's got a budget. Note from Alexis and she's so cute. Oh my goodness. Uh, Although no one wants a card with our faces on it, let's be honest. That's, right. that's true. <laughs> she, she can get away with it. Okay, here we go. It says uh Dear Ryan, Stephen, Rob, you guys are such good people. You really celebrate the underdog and believe in us up-and-comers. And it means so much to me that you saw something in Stump Kitchen at the very beginning and have continued to believe in me to today. Uh, and then it says, uh, thanks for everything and keep up the great work, Alexis, with little hearts on it. Aww. Aww. Well, thank you, Alexis. Mm -hmm. And then there's a little gifty in here. That's too. amazing. It's, it's, uh, Rob, you want to open the gifty? Okay. Okay, so it's, more, uh, let's see, it's wrapped in lovely, what is this, leopard print? <laughs> it's leopard, it's a leopard print bag. Oh my god. Hold on. Oh, look at that, boom. We have stump kitchen buttons, you guys. Well, well you know what, there's Three also, of them. There's also these, uh, I just noticed there's more in the, in the uh, envelope here. Uh, these are, I think. Yeah, these are, we've got Stump Kitchen stickers too. And stickers. Oh. She's got stickers. She's too? got stickers. <laughs> Alexis, call us. We need, we need we need to talk. We need to figure out how you're on these this is a reverse one here. This is this is one you can stick on glass. Oh my god. She's she's got swag, man. <laughs> she's also swag. got pat patron supporters like me, so that's how she can do it. <laughs> yeah, I guess you help pay for this. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Thanks so much, Alexis. Oh, Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Uh, hey, you guys want to talk some news? Let's talk news. Uh, big news. Big, big, big news, which I'm sure I know for a fact that you guys know about this. But for those who don't, uh, who have been following us through the Domino's drama. The Supreme Court challenge to the ADA. Domino's asserting that hey, you can't make us make our website accessible. That's like that ADA is all about physical stuff. It does, has nothing to do with the website. To which the judge said, eh, incorrect. That's right. The uh, Supreme Court, of course, refused to hear Domino's appeal, which means the lower court ruling stands. That's right. So they are, will be making their uh, online offerings accessible. Not that it matters because we're all going to boycott the buggers anyways. <laughs> Jerks. Yeah, I think Rob had a good point um, talking about this whole Domino's fiasco and how it's probably going to even open the door more now to litigation in the U.S. You know, there's been a lot in the past years, but there's even people on Twitter now that are saying, you know, go out and sue. Yep. Um, yeah, it's going it, to absolutely. Uh, and 
that's okay. I mean, that's what kind of needs to happen. That's what, you know, businesses now need to realize. Because what you have to remember, too, about this story is that, you know, this was this was Domino's taking the hit. Mm-hmm. But they had a lot of corporate backers. There was a lot of companies that yeah. were that were backing them that had their own interests uh, in, in the results of this as well. So, you know, there are a lot of corporations out there that were, were you know, keeping a close eye on this. And, you know, they're going to have to respond um, the same way in, in the sense that they're going to have to make, you know, their own um, online services accessible and that's going to be the long and the short of it and that's going to be the positive thing going forward yeah absolutely hopefully you know they're all on google now searching on how do i make my website accessible you know (laughs) but you know well and here that is the other problem i mean this is and it's something that i haven't really read anybody talking about but to kind of side with the companies a little bit if you're going to do this, the ADA needs to be changed. I mean, they need to put in place standards. Standards, guidelines, resources. And guidelines for the companies yeah. to follow. I mean, if you're going to tell them that they, they, they need to make their, their online Those, those standards already exist. You don't, you don't have to. But they're not part of the ADA. That's what I mean. Like the ADA was, was sort of put in place. I mean, I guess they just need to amend that. They need to put in the standards right there. I mean, you're right. Web accessibility standards yeah, are exist. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many people have we had on talking about them? Mm-hmm. But without that being a part of the ADA, and I don't know, I don't know how hard it is to go in and to amend any given act, but it seems ridiculous to me that, that they don't do that. That should be the first thing that they go do is, well, let's update the act to incorporate this new technology called the internet. You know, because the ADA was what, the 90s? Early 90s? The, I, I feel like... The act itself needs to be amended and there needs to be official standards and guidelines in place for these companies to follow. Because part of the problem with in in them just going, okay, well, I guess we'll follow web accessibility standards is that they could still get sued because mm-hmm. who's to say what the guidelines are? What's the standards? Who Who is dictating what makes something accessible and and what makes something not accessible like there has to be guidelines in there to follow or a checklist for them to go okay check 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 but without any of that in there it's you're just going to open the door for more litigation because what happens if somebody tries to connect to dominoes with a screen reader that say isn't as powerful as as jaws or, or nvda or something and aren't able to access you know, ordering the the Supreme Court Supreme Pizza, um, you know, are, are, they're they're just going to get litigated again. So I, I I can see how that well in that case would be so frustrating if they, if they actually were accessible, if they were WCAG compliant, they're testing um, all the system, systems out there okay. that sure. will that yeah. will crawl your site and and tell you what is and isn't accessible on your site. Right. You know, there's there's a whole business model, Picello Group, that's now owned by Vispero. That that's that's what they do. They they do web testing and, and certify accessibility. The, the the standards exist. Companies to help you do it exist. You can get certification from these companies that say yes, your your uh, website is is accessible. It, it doesn't need legislation. It needs the will to be done. And the courts have basically said, do it. So people need to do but, it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose, but I mean, I guess the, my question is where are, you know, is that what they're pointing to? Are the courts saying you need to go to the web accessibility 
guidelines and you need to check all these boxes. That's what you need to do. I guess that's my point. Like I just, I wish there was something in the actual legislation that would point companies to there are the things that you need to do as opposed to just saying, yeah, you need, it needs to be accessible because that's vague. And I, and I could see that, that for companies, it's, it, it would be frustrating to have to deal with. So I guess I want to live in that perfect world where everything is spelled out for you in black and white. That's right. There you go. You and Trump. <laughs> that wasn't funny. Yeah, but that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, all that being said, this is incredibly good news. Uh, I was very relieved to see this. Um, you know, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous to me that this lawsuit even existed. It's ludicrous that, that Domino's took this to the Supreme Court. Um, I can't wait to see what's next. I really can't. You know, the nice thing about Twitter is you see all these things and, you know, you just think of, think of all of them. Think of all the websites out there. There's going to be litigation everywhere and it's going to be fun to watch. Well, I mean, I don't know. If I install the KFC app on my phone right now and I can't order a bucket of chicken... Yeah. Lawsuit. It's that, it would be that easy. Well, no. Well, yes. Well, yes, it would. Yes, but I mean, it's also not easy to sue. I mean, it costs money and it's a a pain in the butt. You got to, you got to, like, probably go fill up paperwork and stuff. (laughs) Got to get yourself a Really, it's only really worth it if you could go on Judge Judy and have it litigated (laughs) because I feel like then you're on TV and you get to meet Judge Judy, which would be cool. But But then again, we talked from that. I mean, suing somebody sounds like a real huge pain in the ass. Yeah, we know down in the U.S. that happens all the time. Right. That's well, I don't say all the time. It happens, I mean, it happens a lot. Well, I mean, Judge Judy does run. I mean, I think she's in her 27th <laughs> year. of. So, I mean, I guess you're kind of right. But it happens a lot. But no. Uh, but, you know, honestly, that is, is, you know, the fear of litigation. We keep hearing again and again. That's that that what's that's what gets companies attention. And that's what yeah. usually drives sweeping changes. Um, you know, uh, companies aren't going to spend you know, 30, 40 grand uh, in making their, their website accessible if they don't have to. No, but they'll spend three, four, five million in litigation. Domino's will. <laughs> but again, like, you know, uh, like I'm wearing the tinfoil hat, so I know yes, the fact know. that there's like this shadow. Ooh. Deep state. Deep state version of like pizza companies that were all like, you know, behind Domino's going, okay, you go fight this yeah. and see how it turns out. And because we don't really want to make our website accessible either, but... You know, we don't want all to, we don't want everybody to have to fight it. So you just go and be our test case. Well, and it would, you know, it'd be like, and, and you guys have a vague idea, but, you know, sit you down at my computer for a day, turn the screen off, take your mouse away, use the screen reader. You know how much shit you hear on the internet that's not accessible? Button, 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 clickable, clickable, button, 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 graphic, graphic, button, button. Like, it needs to change. And sure. education yeah. hasn't done anything. So I sue just. Sue them all. <laughs> Screen readers can't do it all. All right, listeners, everybody, go get a lawyer. <laughs> sue, right. sue, start sue. suing. Absolutely, but no, but you know, it, it will be interesting going forward. Yeah. Um, and and you know, you're right. It it that needs to change. Yeah. Um, you know, especially given that online services uh, are so important these days. I mean, everybody. Everybody has a website or an app now that they want you to use. Um, so, 
there's no reason that people with visual impairments should uh, be shut out of anything. So, something to work towards for sure. Hey, Steve, why don't you tell the fine folks about Canadian Assistive Technology? Well, Canadian Assistive Technology is a Canadian-based distributor of, guess what, assistive technology. I would not have guessed that. Uh, really? Oh, i got to work something better into the name then. <laughs> um, and uh, we do uh, all kinds of low vision and blindness aids, as well as all kinds of physical access aids and uh, accessible furniture, you name it. Visit our website at www.canastech.com. Rick, let me ask you about this. Chaos Technical Services. Chaos Technical Services. Don't sound so excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Speaking of repairs. We are the sister company to Canas Tech. Um, We do the repairs on uh, low vision devices, uh, uh, reading machines uh, for libraries, braille printers, and pretty well anything in between. We can be found at uh, www.chaostechnicalservices.com. Joining us now is Tara Doherty from the Pacific Assistance Dog Society. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Good. Well, listen, we want to thank you so much for uh, taking some time out of your day and and chatting with us about PADS. So why don't we start off uh, real simple and just maybe just give us a little bit of background about PADS and and how long it's been around and, and what you guys do. Um, so Pets has been around for about 33 years now. Um, we've been placing uh, assistance dogs in a variety of different kind of um, capacities um, over that time. We've certainly grown and involved over those years. So we, we actually place uh, four types of dogs now. So we train service dogs for people that are physically disabled, uh, hearing dogs for people that are deaf or hard of hearing, PTSD dogs for veterans and first responders, and accredited facility dogs that work with community care professionals. So those could be uh, educators, people that work in a health care context, could also be um, justice uh, facilities such as victim services or RCMP, where the dogs work with victims of crime in um, kind of forensic interviews or courtroom settings. So those are our four kind of major categories of working dogs that are fully certified. And then we also have one other category, which I love. Um, we have VIP dogs, and those are very important pets um, that are placed with children um, and adults with disabilities. So they don't have all the public access rights, but they're lovely, well-trained dogs that uh, make a tremendous difference. So, um, but didn't quite make the grade as a as a working service dog. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I thought that was really interesting when I was when I was going through the site. Is that and something that I didn't really realize. I guess I, I suspected it intuitively, but you know, I, I guess I just didn't realize that there were sort of really distinct categories um, of of working dogs. Um, yeah. In the sense that you know, there's a you know, like you said, there's a, a hearing dog, and you know, and a, and a something like a, a therapy dog or a PTSD dog, very different than say a, you know a guide dog, and and I'm assuming that they have to be um, trained very differently. 
They do. And a lot of times people assume that, you know, when they see our puppies in training out in the world, that they're being trained as guide dogs because that's what people are most familiar with. Right. Um, But it actually takes a very different training and uh, very different dogs temperament wise. Uh, With guide dogs, you're looking for a dog that is great at disobeying. So a dog that, you know, sees danger and says, you told me to go that way and I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with our service dogs, we want dogs that are going to respond and do what's asked the second they're asked. So it almost kind of takes very different personalities. And fortunately, we, we have lots of partnerships with our guide dog school. So, you know, when we have litters of puppies and some fit kind of one temperament or the other, um, we're able to kind of uh, connect those dots and support each other. So we do a lot of exchanges with other schools um, through our breeding program. So, so now, given each category, um, are there specific breeds that fit really well in certain categories, or can it, it does it really depend on the dog's personality? Uh, it's a little of both. So we we train um, Labradors, Golden Retrievers, and then Lab Golden Crosses. So um, they're a mixture of the two breeds. And a lot of times people just think a Golden Retriever is a long-haired Lab. Um, they're very different breeds, actually. So our Golden Retrievers uh, tend to be very, what we call affiliative, where they like to Um, they're very connected to their people, which is lovely, but they also tend to be softer dogs in terms of not just their coat, but also their personality. So they're less resilient. They don't quite take everything in stride the way our labs do. And then the lab golden cross is kind of an attempt to kind of strike a balance between, um, the wonderful traits of the golden retriever and the confidence of the Labradors. But what both breeds bring to the table, um, are that very, happy-go-lucky kind of personality. They love people. They love to please. They're very food-motivated, uh, So, th- which makes them much easier to train. So there's a lot of breeds that they're like, eh, how are you going to make this worth my while? <laughs> and uh, labs and goldens don't tend to, to fall in that category. And that goes back to why cats probably don't make good service animals. <laughs> yeah. Less food motivated, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, my... yeah, there's really not enough in it for me to really. In, in theory, my English bulldog should make an excellent service animal. <laughs> in theory. <laughs> we did have somebody call once and ask if we could train an English bulldog to be their service dog. And I, would, I, I, I was got... just imagining the dog trying to launch itself to hit an elevator button or something. <laughs> like I mean, the visual was humorous but the reality was probably not so pretty yeah the the, the short answer to that is no, <laughs> yes, no. Yes, no. Having, having had a bulldog for four years i can tell you that they are virtually untrainable <laughs> Excellent. and and is that actually an issue like all joking aside like are, are there certain breeds that are just just no goes um in terms of um either the the temperament of the breed um, or just the, the, the physical limitations, say, um, of, of the breed? There, there, it, it's, that's a really interesting question. So it's another one of those yes and no answers. So with our service dogs, they certainly, you couldn't ask, you know, a papillon to be a bracing dog and support somebody as they're trying to go up and down stairs. That just simply isn't practical. However, 
there's this misconception that service dogs can only be labs, golden retrievers, or German shepherds, that that's kind of the three categories that they fall into, or the three breeds. Um, and that's actually no longer the case. Um, there's a lot of breeds or even, um, you know, mixed breed dogs that are successful as working dogs and can go through the certification process. So what makes a service dog a service dog is their, their training, their behavior, their ability to support someone. You know, we once trained a Papillon. I, you know, I just jokingly referred to how we couldn't use one as a bracing dog, but uh, Jingle made a fantastic little hearing dog. And, you know, I think he was all about six or eight pounds, but, you know, he kept his human safe and that was his job. So he was very, very good at it. He had the right temperament, the right disposition, was very eager, keen to work. So the breeds, there, there isn't kind of a limit to, you know, what dogs can be used, but there are limits to what dogs are practical for specific roles. So we wouldn't ever ask, obviously, a Papillon to be a service dog, but he made a fine hearing dog. And uh, we've worked with a lot of breeds over the years, we've now kind of narrowed down onto the labs and golden retrievers because they can meet the needs of most of our program areas uh, most successfully. Uh, we went through a lot of different breeds trying to find small breed dogs for our hearing dog program where there was one that was just super successful that we could, um, we could kind of purpose breed. And our luck has kind of been hit and miss and it really came down to the individual dogs so we've had some individuals that have been hugely successful uh but you know then breeds as a whole that have been overwhelmingly unsuccessful even though we've we've had a few that have made it through so we we stick with the labs and goldens at this point because you know they work um and most of the time so and it allows us to kind of channel our resources you know it's interesting um i was reading an article uh just the other day about uh the the guy that was responsible for creating the breed of, of Labradoodle. Yeah. And saying, you know, he, him saying that, you know, he kind of regrets uh, that he ever Releasing did Releasing the Frankenstein dog out to the world. <laughs> yeah, I saw that headline too. And, and what's interesting is that started out as an attempt to make a hypoallergenic service dog. That's right, yeah. Which, you know, the most common objection we get to working dogs in a public space is what if people have allergies? Right. And and this goes back to your original question, there isn't really a hypoallergenic breed that has been successful in this kind of work. You know, poodles are extraordinarily intelligent dogs, but they're a little too smart. They think for themselves Mm -hmm. and they don't tend to handle the public life in the same way. That's not to say the whole poodles um, can't do the work. There's, there's some, and I know of a few personally that, that are extraordinary service dogs, but breed as a whole, have not really been successful in those roles. And so his attempt in crossing the lab and the, and the poodle was to produce that hypoallergenic service dog. And yeah, I mean, he, he says he unleashed a monster and I, I, I tend to agree. It seems like everybody is crossing everything with a poodle just so they can add oodle to the end of the name. Um, it's fun. And, you know, we believe really strongly in purpose-bred dogs. We cross our labs and goldens for that reason because we're trying to produce an extraordinary working dog type and it trying to get to that place. I mean, all dog breeds came out of purpose breeding dogs together to try right. and get something that was perfect for a specific mm-hmm. 
uh, role or type of work, right? That's where we got the breeds that we have. So, you know, we're working, you know, we're working at that. Um, but we also, you know, love our purebred labs and our purebred goldens and, you know, believe in responsible breeding and ethical breeding and all that kind of stuff. So. Now, from your guys' experience, out of, out of the, the, all the different categories, and this may be a loaded question, but of all the different categories of dogs that you train, what category tends to be sort of the most labor-intensive in terms of training the dog for that particular task? I would say some of our more specialized service dogs for people with physical disabilities. You're, so not only is it labor-intensive to train, like some of our dogs have... 60 plus cues, like everything from turning lights on and off to helping with the laundry to getting things out of the fridge and, you know, not helping themselves to the cold cuts. Right. And, you know, when you look at a dog like that, and then with some of them, we layer on an additional layer where we want them, for example, somebody who has a spinal cord injury that needs a dog for balance. So maybe they can walk, but they can't bend over and pick things up. That dog needs to have all those skills but it also has to have the enough drive to work and do all the skills, but be calm enough that they can, they would never put pressure on the leash or knock that person off balance. And so trying to find that beautiful threshold between a dog that can be 100% managed by voice alone without any kind of like physical pressure on the leash, but still has enough working drive to do all those skills. Those dogs don't come along every day. And, and so it not only is a ton of training, but it's also finding kind of that magical unicorn of, of a dog that can do all of those things. Can you, can you give us kind of a, a, a look at what the process is from, from puppy on up to, you know, where they get vetted and determined what, what they're best suited for? What, what does that look Absolutely. like? So we have quite a, an established breeding program now. Um, we partner with schools all around the world, actually. I was going to say North America. So we have a North American breeding cooperative of, of schools that trade puppies and litters and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then we also partner with schools overseas and exchange puppies and uh, that kind of thing. And so we breed our own dogs and then they're born into the homes of our volunteer breeder caretakers. So we have volunteers that take on one of our breeding dogs and then care for her puppies for the first eight weeks of life. At, um, of course, they're supported through that whole process by our staff. We come out and deliver the puppies and then we support them through the care and kind of the rearing of those puppies to eight weeks old. At eight weeks, they come in for assessment. And so we do an assessment on them. And this is not like a pass or fail. You're in the program or you're out. It's more to figure out who they are a little bit and get a sense of their personalities and what kind of home they might be most successful in. Then we use that information to match them with another group of volunteers. So we have puppy raisers that raise puppies for the first 18 months or so of life. And so the dogs live with them, go to restaurants and stores and work and all that kind of stuff with them. And so at that point, we hand those little eight-week-old bundles of joy over to those volunteer families. And they live kind of in a foster-type environment with them. They come to puppy class every week. And at the end of that puppy raising period, um, or near the end of it, 
they go through another assessment, usually around 14 months old, that again helps us gather more information about who the dog is, whether they might be successful as an assistance dog, and if so, what kind of work they might be best suited to. So those assessments tell us a lot about who the dog is. We're not testing their obedience or their training or anything like that at that point. We're just looking at you know, who are they, what worries them, what gets them, you know, kind of excited um, and what, you know, potential challenges might be there training wise. So shortly after that, the dogs get, we call it turned in to advanced training. So they come in and they live at our facility Um, here in Burnaby. We also have trainers in Calgary and on Vancouver Island. So that are on staff with pads that train all those special skills. So at that point, they spend another six to nine months with our professional trainers learning all those special skills. So that period might be shorter or longer, depending on what role they go to do. So I told you at the beginning about our accredited facility dogs. Those are extraordinary dogs and they, they are rare gems that can kind of go into an environment where people are having their very worst day and kind of turn things around for them. But it's also a rare dog that can do that work day in, day out, just like the people, and not get stressed by taking on all that emotion. So we have to kind of handpick those dogs. It's very specific temperament that can do that kind of work. But their training period is shorter because they basically have to have very solid obedience, but no special skills. And so we can train them faster, but they're fewer and farther between because of the type of temperament that's required. So at that point, so once the dog passes all their tests in advanced training, they've learned all their special skills, then our trainers look at our wait list and go, okay, who would be the best match for this dog with their strengths, what they like to do? So if you have a dog who will, for example, retrieve items, but will do it a couple of times and then be like, hey, get it yourself. Like, come on. You don't want to place that dog with somebody that has dexterity problems that's going to be dropping things 30 times a day. You want to put the dog with that person that will retrieve like a machine, you know, 100 times a day and come back for more. So we really pride ourselves on matching the right dog with the right person. And and so at that point, the client uh, gets to meet the dog and we kind of determine if it's if it's a good match. And then we move ahead with what we call team training. <clears throat> so team training is uh, kind of an intensive crash course for the clients to learn how to handle the dog and basically, you know, kind of go through the owner's manual and, and learn how do you care for the dog? How do you keep up their training? Because we're not building robots that will perform as, you know, built um, for life if they're not continually uh, rewarded and finding the work enjoyable. So part of our, our goal with that is helping the clients to understand how to motivate their dogs, how to keep them happy and how to watch them for signs of stress and just recognize their needs as well. So, and then all going well, uh, after 45 days, they go through another test um, to kind of make sure that everything's kind of going well. And at that point, they become a certified team. And uh, PADS follows up with all of our dogs annually. So we do an annual follow-up to make sure they're still uh, working the way they were trained to do. And then also to help, if needed, 
add additional skills. Often, they're particularly our, our service dog clients, um, their mobility will decline over time. And so we might need to add some skills on for the dog and, and help kind of support that process. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, kind of not just getting the puppy ready, but then the follow-up um, right. once the dog is with the client. So and this is a this is a, a really huge process. Uh, I mean, it is for sure. You know, it's it's just isn't just a matter of you know giving giving a puppy uh, you know some some skills and then sending it out into the world. So that kind of spins into my next question, which was how many how many applicants do you guys generally get for dogs, and is it a real challenge for you guys to keep up with the demand? It is for sure. It's it's our our biggest challenge to be quite honest uh our wait list it feels like it will always exceed the demand of dogs that we have uh we're going um into our annual graduation this week uh with a record number of dogs um i'm not allowed to say the final number yet because there's a few that are still kind of finishing up and they haven't passed uh their test but hopefully will before graduation but cram guys cram it's it's 20 plus dogs and uh and you know our previous record i think was 16 so um but the numbers are are up there this year and you know we look at that and you know that's a tremendous amount of work for our team and wouldn't be possible without our donors but our wait list is still is still huge we've we've changed up our process a little bit in the last few years where people can submit what's called an expression of interest which really helps us because our old method we would open our wait list and it would be closed a couple days later because it would fill up so quickly and with this new process it kind of is a bit of a pre-screening that helps people to kind of identify if they're even a candidate for our program and then tell us a little bit about themselves so that we, you know, if we have a wait list of 20 people, but none of those people are a match for a dog that is coming through, we can then go to that expression list and look through kind of the submissions and, uh, and, and pull people. It also indexes people as they have kind of submit those expressions so that we know when they first reached out to us. So we're excited about that process. It's meant that, you know, there were some people that applied earlier this year um, that are graduating with dogs this weekend. So um, that thrills us that we're able to respond to some people's needs really quickly. But for some people that are looking for a more specialized dog, the wait is is tough. It, it's four or five years, wow. if not more. So um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It would be really nice to be able to, you know, meet the needs, um, within the community within kind of a six month time frame. Cause when people are struggling with their independence and their mobility, yeah. being able to respond to those needs in a timely way would just be amazing, but it all comes down to dollars, unfortunately. So we do the best we can with, uh, with what we've got and we've got some fantastic supporters. So how many other schools are there in Canada doing the same thing? Oh, um, through, I'm just going to totally guess here, but sure. accredited schools, so schools that are, are certified by Assistance Dogs International or the International Guide Dog Federation, I would say there's probably about a, a dozen. Don't quote me on that yeah. number, but I think it's about a dozen. And then 
I, I don't even want to guess how many other kind of private trainers, unaccredited schools are out there, mm-hmm. um, particularly with legislation having changed recently to allow people to go through an owner trained or privately trained certification process. Um, there's been a lot of um, new schools that have popped up um, that are for profit. So um, meaning that, you know, they're, they're private businesses that an individual can hire to train a dog for them. Right. A while back on the news, it seems to have fallen off the news lately, but uh, a while back there were a lot of stories about people dragging, dragging their pets onto, uh, onto planes, with, you know, bringing yeah. their, their therapy peacocks. That's right. um, has, has, has that, that falsifying of, of service animals impacted you guys at all? Um, it does for sure. Um, the biggest challenge for us is... We, we hugely support private certification because it allows more people to get dogs into their hands that need them. And any dog that is well-trained that can pass that public access test deserves to be kind of helping that person in our opinion. The challenge that we face though with that, because it used to be, you know, we'd be out in public and people before they even saw our vest would say, oh, that's a pads puppy because though you know whether it was pads or bc guide dogs there was kind of that brand recognition of what dogs were legitimate and which dogs weren't and the challenge that comes with private certification is there's a lot of dogs out there that are not wearing pads or bc guide dog branding and there's no issue with them being the dogs being out there if they are certified the challenges makes it very difficult for the public to discern what's legitimate and what isn't and fortunately the bc government introduced really groundbreaking legislation that people all around the world kind of looked at and went, wow, this is fantastic. Um, And it allows public access rights for the puppies in training, but it also has teeth behind it for people that are um, impersonating a service dog. So um, it, it allows, like there's consequences to people that are falsely representing their dog as service dogs. And the other really important piece of it is um, they've provided government-issued ID for all certified teams. So it looks kind of like a driver's license. So both um, the dogs and the handlers have like an identification card that they can show if they go into restaurants, et cetera. So that's helped a lot in helping people to identify which dogs kind of meet the grade and which ones don't. But it's still a challenge. You know, we were, I was out of the mall this weekend with a, a, a dog in training and I came across four other dogs and I can guarantee just based on behavior, <laughs> that at least three of them were not legitimate service dogs. They were just dogs that somebody had bought a vest online oh, and you know, they want to be able to take fluffy out with them. Hmm. And you <sighs> so know, annoying. it's very, it, it's super frustrating because, you know, we've had dogs, um, had, you know, a, a fake service dog come at them aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear horror stories all the time from restaurants and stuff about people coming into a restaurant and getting their dog up on the seat next to them and ordering <laughs> them a meal. And I'm just, it, oh you know, God. it just downgrades the reputation of all working dogs yeah. when behavior like that is allowed. So, yeah. And that fight's been going on for years, ever since there's been service dogs, you know, trying to bring your guide dogs or service animal into a restaurant has always been a fight. And, and obviously that's not going to change anytime soon. No. Let me sort of take a similar question, but from a different angle. Um, Because 
service and therapy animals have sort of been in the news more and more and you hear about more and more people you know whether whether they're legitimate or not but like having having service animals have you guys noticed an uptick in say applications based on sort of that increased visibility of of the idea of of service and therapy animals we have and and i think too you know what's tough for us is we basically um have four models of car right and um and the needs that these dogs meet you know across all program areas of all schools are far greater than four there's probably 20 different kinds of service dogs there's dogs that detect seizures and dogs that um can detect like if you're diabetic if you're having a high or a low and alert you before it even happens so that you're you're not kind of in a dangerous state so there's a lot of different kinds of service dogs um that are out there um you know the possibilities really are endless and in in some ways so we only meet kind of four areas of need um but you know, we're, we're fortunate to have partnerships. We do get a lot of inquiries from people looking for emotional support animals, which are not yet recognized under the law in the same way service dogs are. Um, they're not in the legislation yet. So we don't, um, want to diminish for a second that dogs are extremely powerful in helping people, you know, deal with, you know, whether it's, um, mental illness or anxiety or whatever it is. Um, but there's a lot of debate out there in the world about whether or not those dogs belong in a public setting and, or whether or not, um, you know, having a dog as a pet, um, should be sufficient. And that debate spans across, you know, mental, uh, health, like medical practitioners about whether or not, you know, the, the dog is, is supporting the person or the dog is, um, kind of keeping the person in a position of, of, of disability as opposed to, um, healing and growth. And so it's kind of, it's a really interesting discussion. It's one that, you know, we typically kind of just stay on the outskirts of because it's not an area that, that we service, um, because the dogs wouldn't have public access even if we did train them. So, um, but we do certainly support, uh, we've placed many of our VIP dogs with, um, children and adults, um, with anxiety, depression, et cetera. And those dogs make a phenomenal difference. Um, so, and, you know, we're really proud of those placements and the impact that these dogs can have, um, just even in, in a pet capacity. So do you see a time when sort of, you know, there might be sort of you guys who are are a little bit more specialized with some of the higher level skills that are needed. And then there's maybe like sort of like just a general, general therapy animals that might more fit in where, you know, where there's not specialized skills necessarily needed for that animal, but maybe just a good temperament. Do you you see a time when maybe there will, there will be like sort of a less specialized, I think we're already there. We've got some fantastic organizations that work with therapy animals. So the distinction between therapy dog and, and assistance dog is, is simply that a therapy dog is someone's pet that has been kind of vetted by someone, an organization of some kind that has gone, put the dog through a temperament test, et cetera, to make sure that dog has the training and the, the temperament to be 
to be safe in that environment. So you look at BC Pets and Friends or St. John's Ambulance, uh, both those organizations do phenomenal work with therapy dogs within senior centers, um, healthcare settings, et cetera, where the dogs go in and visit. And um, they do absolutely tremendous work. I think the, the challenge for us is that sometimes there's an assumption that those dogs and, for example, our accredited facility dogs are the same thing and they're not. So, um, you know, having a pet that's well-mannered and um, well-trained is very different than a purpose-bred dog that's gone through two years of professional training and been exposed to an astronomical number of environments, et cetera. And so we're quite um, committed to advocating for the use of accredited facility dogs, particularly in courtroom settings um, where, you know what, one really, you know, one, one dog could put back, you know, years of work for, for dozens of dogs. So, you know, you take a dog into a courtroom to support a witness and that dog decides, you know, to bark or, you know, leave where it's been stationed with the witness, et cetera, and cause some sort of disturbance you know, the fact that we've been allowed into the courtroom at all is a huge privilege and and a tremendous support to vulnerable witnesses. So there's some settings like that where we really firmly believe that it should be purpose-bred and trained dogs, right. um, fully certified dogs that are in those settings. But it doesn't mean there isn't a place for both therapy dogs and accredited facility dogs. Um, the therapy dogs that are out there in the community are doing absolutely tremendous work and we want to see them continue to do that work. And the interesting thing is, is, you know, a lot of our dogs that don't quite make the grade as pads dogs do go on to do that kind of work. And, and, you know, we support that um, where it makes sense and where, you know, the dogs will enjoy it and, and make a difference. Well, okay. Well, let's just, just for giggles, let's, let's talk about the, the, the notion of, other therapy animals, uh, you know, aside from dogs. Yep. Is it a ridiculous concept or? <laughs> no, no, not at all. There's, there's a ton of, um, there's a ton of research and history out there around other kinds of animals now being used in therapeutic settings. So BC Pets and Friends that I mentioned a few moments ago, they actually do have cats that go through their process and will go and visit in nursing homes and, and um, provide companionship and, and, and comfort to people that, you know, are maybe missing their pet dog or, or sorry, their pet cat. Um, that was a Freudian slip. Um, so, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of programs out there that use horses in kind of therapeutic settings. So, um, I know PRDA, uh, which I'm just thinking what the acronym stands for Pacific riding for the disabled association. I think they're out in Langley, but they, um, they work with kids, um, with disabilities and kind of get them on, on horseback and, and, and help, um, you know, it helps them build core strength. It helps them build confidence. Um, so there's tremendous work being done with animals in all sorts of ways. And, I don't think, you know, as an organization, you know, we'd be pretty hypocritical to say the animals we have are the only ones that can make a difference. We, we quite the opposite. Um, you know, we do a specific type of work and we kind of stick to that kind of work. 
and um, we try to be kind of the best we can within the industry. And but we also recognize that there's a lot of need out there um, for animals to do uh, this sort of work in different contexts as well. If that makes sense. Yeah. So using dogs in uh, all sorts of different ways that uh, helps improve kind of the human condition and the human experience. There's a lot of people dealing with a lot of things out there. And if a dog or a cat or a bird or a ferret or, you know, whatever it is that, um, that, that helps you, uh, I don't necessarily know if all those things should be in a public setting for a multitude of reasons, <laughs> but, but there's, it doesn't diminish that they can have a tremendous impact. Don't step on my seeing eye ferret. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's an, like it, it sounds uh, facetious or flippant, but you know, I've got a young fellow in the community that I live in that um, finds great comfort in his pet rats and was asking about if there was a way he could get them certified to take them with him in public. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm going to say I have a very visceral reaction to rats and <laughs> I'm not going to judge him if those, if those rats help him, but I don't want a rat in a restaurant with no. me. <laughs> so they, they do a lot say, of work to keep them out. That's right. <laughs> well, that's exactly it, right? So um but you know if those if those animals kind of bring you comfort, fill your boots. Um but I, I think that the you know the piece around the the public access piece of it is, you know, dogs are very widely recognized as service animals. Right. Um, there's other organizations in the States. I don't know of any in Canada, but there's organizations in the States that do work with miniature horses, um, for guide animals. Yep. Um, because instead of getting, you know, an eight to 10 year work, working lifespan, you get 20 plus years, um, out of one animal. Hmm. Um, I still have a hard time envisioning somebody boarding a plane with a miniature horse. Yeah. It's hard <laughs> but, to get them under your it, seat, <laughs> but it does happen. Right. And, yeah. and those, those animals are doing tremendous work. And just cause I don't understand, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Right. Right. Well, yeah. pigs are supposed to be very intelligent. Mm -hmm. So that's right. Know, they are. I could see like a seeing eye pig. I mean, is it, is it, I mean, you laugh, yeah, but like I mean, a really thousand is it, pound hog walking down the street. <laughs> is it really, <laughs> I mean, if, if it works. Well, and you know, it's, it, this is where the conversation gets really interesting. I'm going to call it interesting. Um, is that there has to be levels of practicality as well. Yeah. And, you know, there was an experiment that was done by a news reporter back East in the States a couple of years ago, it was floating around in the news where she basically showed up to board aircraft with a multitude of different animals. And it was a social experiment to see how many different animals can I get onto a plane as my emotional support animal. <laughs> and it was insane. Like she had a peacock, she had a turkey. I'm pretty sure she actually had a miniature pig. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, ferrets and rats and cats and dogs and all the things right and and at some point there has to be standards yeah. 
of training and behavior. And there has to be somebody who's willing to do that certification. So we're really proud of our, our accreditation through Assistance Dogs International. It's an extraordinary organization that believes in bettering the public reputation of working dogs and bettering um, access for the people who need them. And I actually believe that if, you know, horses or pigs or whatever it was were more successful than dogs, we would see organizations like that showing up Mm. to bring standards to the industry. But so far that hasn't happened. And what that tells me is that the dogs are still the best choice for the work, um, kind of all the way around. And so, you know, we're excited to be, to be doing this work. Um, but again, that sometimes people think that that statement diminishes the impact that those other animals have. It doesn't. It's just saying that there's issues of public safety and public yeah. acceptance, et cetera, that have been very hard fought um, that we don't want to see um, destroyed in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if anybody can just show up with a doctor's note and bring any animal into any restaurant or business, et cetera, it would be a free for all. And, uh, so that's something that, uh, you know, we advocate pretty strongly, um, for kind of maintaining, um, standards Absolutely. Uh, across yeah. the industry. Yeah. So. so Ryan, we should do a social experiment. We're trying to get you see if, see if a cab will pick you up with a seeing eye horse. Um, or a seeing eye penguin. Yeah. <laughs> well, seeing eye penguin. That's funny. Um, well, let's um, let's talk a little bit about funding. Um, yeah. Where do you where do you guys uh, secure funding from? Um, we have a tremendous number of extraordinary donors. Um, everything from individuals uh, or partnerships. We have a fantastic partnership with uh, YVR. They sponsored one of our litters last year. Um, Telus has been tremendously generous with our program kind of across all of our regions, different, um, foundations, uh, Mr. Blake foundation has sponsored a couple of our litters over the past few years. Uh, our longtime benefactors are the John Hardy Mitchell family foundation. They, you know, built our original training center, but they, they have just been absolute steady in supporting us over the years. So, you know, we're very fortunate that way to have organizations that come alongside and believe in what we do, but, I I would be remiss if I didn't also mention the individuals. We have people that every single month make a donation to pads and that expression of many hands make light, make light work, uh, holds true, um, for the work that we do and seeing people come together and, you know, I'm in the process this week of putting together a graduation program and some of these dogs have a dozen names after them. So whether it's volunteers, sponsors, supporters, et cetera. So really, you know, we, we say it takes a village to raise a dog and, and it really is, you know, it might be cliche, but it's really true. And we're very grateful for the people that give their time and, and, and their dollars to help support our program costs about $35,000 to train, uh, a service dog and support it throughout its working career. So it's not, it's not a small feat. Uh, you know, we're looking at, uh, 
over two years of training before the dog ever gets the leash handed over to mm-hmm. an individual. And, you know, that is really, you know, tying back to what we were talking about accreditation wise and, you know, public access, you know, we take that responsibility really seriously that we train world-class dogs that are going to be invisible when they go out in public. I mean, yes, they're adorable, but you're not going to know that they're curled up underneath, you know, the restaurant table. When I'm out with my puppy and training, the best compliment I can be given is, oh my gosh, I didn't even know a dog was there when I get up to leave. And and that's really the way it should be. And that comes down to, to the training and the funding of those supporters. Uh, and how reliant are you guys on volunteers? Hugely. So 98% volunteer driven. Wow. So we have wow. over 700 volunteers in uh, four different regions. And some of those volunteers are 24 seven, 365 days a year, which is quite the volunteer commitment. I have to say, mm-hmm. um, it's not yeah. like, you know, showing up once a week and cut cuddling puppies. Um, these, these individuals take dogs home with them. They take them to work, they take them to the movies, etc. And so it's a huge commitment and, uh, we don't want to diminish how much work it is, but it's also an extraordinary community of people. Um, I started as one of those volunteers with pads and, you know, 13 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm still here and I would still be here even if I wasn't staff. Um, you know, I say I came for the dogs and I stayed for the people. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, I know, you know, we're very reliant as an organization on it, but what has become really clear to me over the years in watching our volunteers and how they interact with us and each other is that we're also filling a very real need in, you know, a community where people are struggling to, to connect and, and to find community. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that, uh, that we have at pads is just a lot of people that have found kind of a a village of people that, uh, they can kind of call their own and, that kind of spans beyond just puppy training and cuddles, but also supporting each other just through life. So, uh, we love our volunteers. They're, uh, some, I, I, I don't say this lightly. I think we've got some of the best volunteers out there, like just a tremendous group of people. So, well, listen, let's spin off right into a plug. Um, where can people find uh, pads online if, if they happen to want to donate or if they want to volunteer? So our website is pads.ca, so short and sweet. Uh, there's information on the website about volunteering, about donating. Um, that's all kind of in the main in the main menu. And, you know, when we talk about volunteering, um, you know, our main roles obviously are puppy raising and um, that kind of thing. But there's other ways that people can help us as well. Um, we really encourage third-party fundraisers, all that kind of thing. So there's information on our website about how to get involved and, uh, and find something that's, that's a good fit, um, for you. Right. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be raising a puppy. So, uh, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And, uh, and certainly, uh, I will never discourage a donation, uh, this is it it's what helps us continue to do what we do listen before we let you go um was there anything that we that you wanted to hit on or talk about um that we didn't hit on 
No, I think we covered a lot of ground, actually. Uh, that was oh, fantastic. Good. And I really appreciate you guys reaching out to us. And and actually, I'm just going to totally take that back now that, uh, <laughs> that I said that is, you know, if there are people that are interested in applying um, and interested in how a service dog can help them, there's information on our website about that as well. And, uh, you know, go through that expression of interest and see if uh, we train the kind of dog that you need and, and how that dog can kind of help support your independence. So, you know, they're the reason that we do what we do. So um, certainly that invitation is out to anybody who, who is interested. Excellent. We, we just need a dog that we can train to growl at Rob anytime he reaches for Chef Boyardee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, how about I train a dog to just eat the Chef Boyardee for him? That, that'd be easier? That, 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 that might work. That'd probably lead to the punch. Days, like, <laughs> your dog's already trained for that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. He's already got that. Okay. So is it one of those codependent relationships where they just feed each other? Well, clear, clearly his cats aren't helping him. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Oh, dear. We appreciate you, uh, you joining us and, and giving us some insight into that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having us. I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, any kind of public awareness helps helps us kind of um, do the work that we do. So this is just another way that people can can support us is just helping us get the word out there about what we do. So thank you um, all so much for taking time out of your day uh, to help make that happen. You bet. All right. Well, come back and talk to us again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. For and, sure. Thanks and good so luck much. with the, the big graduation this weekend. Yeah, this Sunday, uh, Michael J. Fox. So it's looking like uh, it's going to be a very, very full house. Um, but we, you know, we're telling people at this point that, you know, they can show up at the door and we will do our best to get them in. But uh, it's with a record number of grads. We've also got uh, looks like a record number of guests. So so it should be a very fun day. Um, it is open to the general public, but um, we're kind of nearing capacity. So um, it, it's hit or miss at this point whether or not we can get you in the door, unfortunately. Great. Now, there's an after-grad party I want to go to. <laughs> well, and you know what? The party itself, the theater has limitations, but the party itself afterwards, if you just want to be, like, swarmed with puppies in a cafeteria of, you know, refreshments, uh, come on out around 3 o'clock on, on Sunday, and you'll get to see a whole bunch of our puppies. So, nice. yeah, it's a good time. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, and take care, and uh, we'll talk thanks to you again. All. Great, thank you. All right, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Actually, that's a pretty good sell, actually. I, I, I feel well, like I a lot s- of people would sign up for that. I was like, wait, I get to be sworn by puppies? And well, I was going to say, if we, yeah, if we exactly. threw you in a ball pit, except it was a puppy pit, you'd become a puppy lover. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> sure you would. No, I wouldn't. They'd just pee on me and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Little fluff balls all over you. No. Cuddling, licking you, kissing you. I mean, dogs Aww. are fine. Look, I don't, it's not I have an issue with dogs. It's yeah, just it kind of sounds like you do. I don't. <laughs> But they're just, yeah. let's face it, they're kind of dumb. <laughs> no, okay, I won't get controversial. Can your cat press an elevator button? No. Not yet. Because <laughs> yeah, it doesn't want to. Because <laughs> it's a cat. <laughs> Does what it wants. That's right. uh, no, that's interesting. $35,000 to raise mm-hmm. to raise a, a service animal. That's a lot of dough. Yep. And, you know, you listen to the process that it's no wonder there are huge waiting lists. Yeah. 
Well, guide dogs are even more, right? Like, yeah. Like, are they? Dogs for the blind are even more than that. Yeah, I think they're up around 60, 70, maybe more. Yeah. yeah. I heard 100,000 from somebody once. Oh, I don't know if that's true or not. But, yeah. but I mean, yeah, it, it's an expensive process. It it's very labor intensive. And uh, yeah. when you think about, you know, you got the food and you got the vet bills and all that's got to get paid for, right? Mm -hmm. That's all part of the training, the raising. But it. Yeah. And we and maybe you know this is something that maybe we should have talked to her a little bit about, but because I don't know if you guys will be any help, but you know it, it seems ridiculous to me that there's no funding for the, for service animals in terms of because like they fulfill funding. such a, a huge need. I don't know. Maybe there is a component to it that's government funded. I don't know. But she yeah, didn't, she didn't mention it, but yeah. yeah. So. Um, I mean, if there isn't, then there's, there certainly should be because they're certainly as valuable as any, you know, any piece of AT mm -hmm. or any, any sort of, you know, other mobility aid. Uh, I mean, out of all mobility aids, they're probably, the, you know, the most valuable. Yep. When are you going to get a uh, service animal, Ryan? I had one. Well, when are you going to get another one? Mm, don't need one. <laughs> He's got a service Rob and a service Steve. <laughs> That's right. And a service wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, your dog wouldn't get you Timbits. No, he'd eat the Timbits. <laughs> well, you're assuming that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. I don't know. She was a little bit more um, open to the idea of other service animals than I expected. Yeah, I think, you know, we didn't really get into it a whole lot, but determining other than maybe an animal's behavior what is a certified service animal? How can you tell? You know, somebody's walking into a restaurant with a peacock or, you know, a dog with a vest they bought from Amazon. Like, how, how can you tell other than, you know, their behavior? You know, it's like guide dogs, right? You know, all that certification can be faked. Yeah, well, I think it comes down to education, right? Like, mm -hmm. in terms of the general public, I don't think that they really, they see a vest on, a, on any sort of an animal. Yeah. At the mall, and you just assume that that's right. a, and and you mean even I like you know if, if for as much as I know, now if I go to the mall today, and I see a dog in a yellow vest walking with somebody through the mall, I'm going to go okay, that's a that's a service dog in training. Yeah. I'm not going to question it, no matter what it's doing. So you know, I think, but but I I do I think that it sounds like they're moving in the right direction in terms of, you know, issuing, you know. Um, credentials mm -hmm. to the trainers and you know and I'm, I'm sure that you know all the service animals will have some sort of paperwork that you might just get to the point where restaurants will be within their rights to ask for Absolutely. a service animals ID. paper yeah. Yeah. you know to make sure that they are actually accredited so yeah. you know that's where that might actually have to get to so that you don't have all these posers just mm -hmm. wanting to bring their... I don't understand. Like, leave your dog at home. Like, you can't go to the restaurant without know. your dog for yeah. half an hour? Like, what's wrong with you? This is where dog people are weird. <laughs> Some of them are. weirdos. Yeah. Some of them are. Hmm. Hmm. Anyways. Except for our listeners, of course. If there's any dog lovers out there that we love you. But... <laughs> we love you. But if you're listening to this show with your bulldog sitting on a chair in a restaurant eating foie gras <laughs> we're, we're not happy with you <laughs> shame on you <laughs> hey Ryan Rob where can people find us they can find us at atbanter.com they can also drop us an email if they so desire at cowbell at atbanter.com 
And they can find us on the social medias. We's on the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Instagrams, the... Uh, uh, there was another one in there somewhere, wasn't <laughs> there's there? There's never no. been another no, one. There's always no. A, no, there's another one. We I go, know. Oh, yeah, we're on that one, too. Isn't there? <laughs> every, sure. Every episode. Been developed really? yet. Uh, yep. Okay. That's right. You know what? You know what? There's a social media that's up and coming right now, and I'm just holding its place. <laughs> yep. yep. That's right. No, it's because Google Plus. It, it used to be, you know, we used to have four. We just got trained by it. And then, you know, Google Plus well, folded. We, and We are on LinkedIn, so there's four. Uh, there it is, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. see, right, I knew fine. I was missing one. <laughs> there you go. LinkedIn. Go find us on LinkedIn. Uh, we, we, whoa, whoa, whoa. What else? Uh, yeah, that's it. That is it. You think um, I remember that too, given that LinkedIn's the only one I'm actually on anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, how is that going for you, anyways? Are you do you feel healthier, mentally healthier now that you've given up all other social media? Oh God, yeah. Particularly yeah. now. Can, oh, can you imagine me on social media <laughs> now all with all this Trump <laughs> stuff going on right now? Yeah, oh, I'd be losing my mind. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be, I'd be trolling Trump supporter. Uh, oh, it'd be awful. It do you ever? Awful. Do you find your hands get like itchy sometimes when you're just like, ooh? You know what? I'm something that's starting to become a pet peeve for me now is. You see all these shows that are saying, come and join the conversation mm -hmm. on Twitter. Yeah. You have to be on social media if you want to engage in these conversations right. now. Yeah. And, and that annoys me because they should have some platform, you know, if it's CNN, they should have a CNN platform where anybody can go in yeah. without, without having to give up their personal information to a massive giant data core. Right. Yep. Um, and, and still be able to participate. Well, you know, so. it, it, it killed the days. I mean, remember the days where every website would have like a, a you know, a forum yeah. or, a, or a message board or something yeah. for people to participate. And it varied from, from, you know, organization to organization. Those are just gone now because yeah. everybody just uses the big social media platforms. So it's, it's, it's yeah. a bit of a shame. Yeah. Want to talk to us? Drink this poison. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. Well, good for you. Uh, I, you know, I, I have to admit that when you first announced you're doing it, I, I gave you about a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. strangely, that's about what I gave me too. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's funny because even now I sometimes find myself sitting down at the computer, opening up a browser and typing <laughs> www.facebook.com. It became so automatic <laughs> over so many years that it, it, it was just this habit that I had and, and it's starting to go away now. But I've, I was recently as last week I did it and it's like, what the hell am I doing? Why, yeah. why am I typing this in? What drives me crazy about it is just that I found that my attention span has just completely gone. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll sit down and watch a show and for me to get through like a 45 minute, say Netflix show, uh, as soon as there's a lull, the second there's a lull, I'll boom, I'll open the phone yeah. mm. and, and check, check stuff. And then I'll be like, Oh, I, I try to come back into the show and you know, I have trouble getting back into it. And so, yeah, it's really annoying. I, I, I'm, so I'm trying to get better about that. If I'm sitting down to watch something, I'll just, you know, I'm putting the phone in the other room. I don't want anything to do with it. If there's a lull, I'm just going to deal with it. Like I used to be able to ride the elevator up to my apartment without checking my phone, but now it's yeah. just like any sort of lull in activity. And it's wow. like, yeah, we've got to check the phone. I'll... So it's, mm. it's nuts. We're just training ourselves to like need some sort of stimulus, like every second of every day. Yeah. Mm. Crazy. 
I'm telling you, I said it last week. Let's give apes a chance. <laughs> I welcome the, right. our ape overlords. Anyways. All right. That is going to about do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Whoa, look at that. Master of the one take.